Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Life. Thank you, worship team. Thank you, Mike. If I have not had the uh, pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Tommy Clayton. I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Life, and we are a uh, seven-year-old church plant who are praying together for a building, and uh, hopefully we're going to see some answers to those prayers. We've been praying for three things this year, and uh, forgive me, I haven't, I've been remiss to, uh, to give an update on that. We've been praying for, for God to give us a building so we could have a, uh, our own location. We could have like a home base where we could do equipping and training and not be at the mercy of a third party, which is uh, difficult. This, this school has been a tremendous blessing and connecting with the staff, the faculty, and the students especially has been a great mission field for us and a great partnership. But we want our own space. It's been seven years. We've grown. We've been praying for that. And we're beginning to see God give us some possibilities to answers. Having some meetings this week and next, so be praying about that. Another thing we've been praying for is for God to raise up students, and, excuse me, and student leaders, ambassadors to invest in our young people and in our students. And God brought Matt and Alexa Carr, and we brought him on staff as our discipleship pastor. He's done a tremendous job. Opened our children up to our students up to their first camp and has been meeting with them regularly every other week. In fact, they're meeting tonight. I'm going to give an announcement about that at the end of the service at 6.30. Um, and the other thing we've been praying for always is just for God to give us gospel conversations. Gospel conversations. That we're always living on mission for Jesus. We're always supposed to be salt and light wherever we're at. Whatever we're doing, we are an ambassador and we represent the mighty King of Heaven. And so... Uh, Faith comes by hearing. You've heard the, the saying, and I, and I know what it means. Uh, it goes something like this. Preach the gospel at all times. Use words when necessary. Uh, that's kind of like saying do math at all times. Use numbers when necessary. You have to use words when you share the gospel. It's great to have a life that builds credibility and that uh, provokes questions. You know, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that is within you. That, that includes that you've provoked curiosity with people. Why do they suffer differently? Why do they act differently? But you have to use words, and we want to be God's agents. We want to be willing and ready and eager to share the good news of the gospel, how God rescued us and is transforming us. So I've heard lots of testimonies about how God is answering those three prayers, and we'll continue to do so. Here's another prayer before we get started, and we'll pray together. Uh, three, three people from our church, one of our lay elders, Steve Ekman, uh, and Fran Dobb, and also Ken Osborne. I believe Ken went too, right? They, they left yesterday on a Samaritan's purse trip called After the Storm. They went to Kentucky. You've heard the devastation that the flood has caused their lives lost, uh, homes, belongings, possessions, just, just uh, devastating. They need the hope of Jesus. And so thankfully, there's boots on the ground there right now as we speak. I know they're already there. So will you please join me in praying for them for health, for safety, for unity, for most importantly, though, for God to give them divine appointments to share the real reason why they're there. Um, all these things are passing away, the Bible says, homes, houses, possessions, but the thing that lasts forever is the treasure of, of Christ. So let's pray and ask God to give us, none of that counts for my time for the sermon, by the way, right? <laughs> let's ask for God to give us, to open our hearts and open our ears to hear the truth of God's word. Let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the privilege, for the freedom, for the joy how exhilarating it is to meet together, to gather together. I want to be here, Lord, because you are here. We sense your presence here in this place through the singing of the songs, the lyrics, the theology, through the prayers, the conversation, the greeting, the hospitality. Your spirit is at work. 
in each and every person here that you feel that has come to know Christ, Lord, and you have unleashed your gift within them to serve. And I pray that this will be a place um, that we would say, surely God was in this place. But may it not be said of us that we didn't know it. We know it. We, we, we feel your presence. We are experiencing your presence in a powerful way. May we continue to do that as the word of God is preached. And th- these are powerful realities we're going to be looking at. They're not easy to always understand or apply. So would you please help us, Lord? Anoint me. Give me divine unction and power. Fill me uh, with just a clear mind in this, Lord, with a, with a power and, and with your presence to help. Your Holy Spirit recorded these things, preserved these things, inspire these things, and your Holy Spirit is our resident teacher who interprets these things. So help us to do that now. And I pray for Steve and for Fran and for Ken and for all the others on that trip. Lord, please use them in a powerful way to leave a lasting and eternal impression on the people who are just so hopeless there, Uh, God. They have no hope other than maybe a house or the memory of a loved one. Um, And I pray that you would give them lasting hope, God, that will not disappoint, won't make the heart sick, it won't ever be deferred. It will be eternal. Thank you for the opportunity you gave them to go. Be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, I realize that I've been preaching through Romans. It's been over a year and a half now, and we're only in chapter 8, and we're not even finished with that chapter. And then some of you have asked me, you really slowed down. Uh, I did. I did slow down. And here's the reason why. There, there are powerful realities all through the book of Romans, and I've told you from the very beginning, this is one of the greatest letters, maybe the greatest letter ever written. You hate to contrast scripture and compare it with other parts, but this book, this letter, it's an epistle, it was a letter the apostle Paul wrote to a church. It's been used powerfully throughout history to change the world by changing people, and if this is the greatest, most powerful letter ever written, this is probably the most powerful chapter, even though chapter headings and chapter numbers They're not inspired. They were added by translators to help us organize and memorize the Bible. But the section of chapter 8, verses 1 through the very end there, how many verses are there in chapter 8? Anybody? 30-something? Yeah. Um, We'll get there. We'll get through every one of them. This is, the the realities represented in this chapter are so powerful, and they're so deep, and they're so helpful. I wanted to take our time. Now, Now, that's not to say the rest of Romans isn't. But as your pastor, I'm always praying, God, show me how to help this flock of sheep. I meet with you. I talk with you. I'm in community with you. Some of you I have lunch and breakfast with and coffee regularly. Some of you I visit in your homes. You come to my home. And I talk with you. I converse with you. And I hear, you know, you're supposed to know the condition and state of your flock. That's one of my responsibilities and calling as your pastor. And I'm hearing things about how we combat temptation and sin, the struggles we have, the relational conflicts we're in. And I want to be a good shepherd. I want to respond to those things. Uh, God brought us to this chapter and this day and this time in Central Florida, and I don't want to rush it. I want to take our time. That's why so often my sermons get long. Uh, and so, in one sense, I apologize for that. I don't want to preach super long messages because I know, you know, human beings have a shorter attention than goldfish. Did you guys know that? It's, I, I'm not kidding. It's been scientifically proven, about nine seconds. I have six kids. They're proving, they're proving that out sometimes. <laughs> And I prove it out too. We just get distracted. So it's not, my, it's, it's not my intention to preach super long messages. It is my intention to be thorough though and to not leave out anything that would feed you and fuel you and help you and aid you. Uh, and my sense is that the Spirit of God is using these things. And so we've done a short series on killing sin. 
And I haven't even gotten to the best part of this passage on killing sin, so we're going to just enter that part today. The title of this message is Killing Sin by the Spirit. Killing Sin by the Spirit. So that's why I slowed down. There's so much here that's so helpful. Listen, when we believed in Jesus, when we believed the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came and died in our place and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven, the instant that happened, the Bible says we died to sin. We died to its power, we died to its authority, we died to its jurisdiction. It no longer has any authority over us. We died to it. We even threw a funeral for ourselves called baptism. We said goodbye to the old me, and we put a tombstone up there. Good riddance. New me, uh, whoever, if, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? Better version of the old you? No. He's a new creation, brand new in Christ, new birth, transformation, new heart, old heart, replaced the heart of stone, got a new heart. So we're brand new. We're alive now. We died to sin, but here's the problem. You died to sin, but sin did not die to you. Have you realized that in your Christian life yet? You will if you haven't. Sin is still very much alive, and it wants to climb back on the throne of that old life that you ripped away from it. It's angry. It wants vengeance. It wants dominion. It wants you. Sin is like this ravenous animal. And it's screaming these demands upon you. It wants your obedience. It wants to exercise control and dominion over you. It wants to deceive you and seduce you and captivate you and hold you prisoner again, like it did before. Except things are different. You're a new you. It's still the old sin, still doing the same thing. It's a predator. It wants to kill you. That's what sin wants to do. It wants to ultimately take you prisoner, seduce you, captivate you, dominate you, and then destroy you. That's what it wants to do. And so Paul is telling us these things. He loves the church at Rome. He loves us. So he's telling us, look, sin is on the prowl. It wants you. You know, my family loves true crime documentaries and all things true crime, podcasts, all that stuff. And we'll watch those when it's, you know, our kids are all different ages. When it's appropriate, some of the older ones will watch a true crime documentary. And I'm always, I'm always seeing the ones about the sociopath that turned into a psychopath. And they were living with people, maybe a roommate that wasn't related to them or just a family. And the people had no idea. And I'm thinking, man, that's so, it's such a parallel. Because that's what, sin is psychotic. It's sociopathic. It wants to kill you while it's whispering lies in your ear. That we've been learning about the last two weeks, this, this script, this narrative, that's what sin does, it lies. That's the only power sin has any longer over your life is to lie and deceive you and harden you and trick you. But can you imagine like inviting a sociopath to live in your house, thinking like God just called us to be at peace with sin, right? Surely the bitterness of sin's power is gone, and now we can just keep it like a pet. I can control this. I can, I can handle it. You ever told yourself that? Temptation comes, oh, I can handle it. I can, I can stop, I can say no, like a drug addict, the cocaine addict. You know, I can stop whenever I want to. Well, that's the problem. Your want to is captivated. But I, 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 God doesn't call us to tame sin and to make it a, a domesticate it and make it a pet. Can you imagine that? Inviting a, a deadly, sociopathic, psychotic killer into your house and saying, look, bro, we can live together here, just keep the thermostat on 73 and leave my wife and kids alone. Can you imagine that? But that's the picture of when you don't do what Paul is calling us to do here, when you don't, by the Spirit, put to death the deeds of the body, the Bible says you die. If you live according to the flesh, you die. That means if you're under the control of the flesh, under the influence of the flesh, and flesh is just, that's just code in Greek, flesh, sarx in Greek, means the unredeemed you. 
the you that has just only uh, the weak, puny power of, of, of your unredeemed flesh. And listen, the flesh can do a lot of things, but the things that it can't do is kill sin. That's a supernatural work. That's a spiritual work. And for that, you need supernatural power. You need supernatural help. So that's what this uh, passage is really all about. We are still in a fight. It's not over. If you are in Christ, you're sitting in this building or watching from home, you are in Christ. I want to tell you right now, the fight is not over yet. One day, as my football coach used to say, Clayton, you can rest when you're dead. One day we'll be able to rest. But not yet. We're in the in-between. We're between D-Day and V-Day. You remember that? It's about a nine-month period in, in World War II. I think that's World War II, right? Yeah. When uh, we stormed the beaches at Normandy and, and, and dealt the decisive blow of defeat to, uh, to Hitler's regime, to the Germans, the Allied forces invaded that beach. And that battle was, was, was so strategic and so important. When it was won, the, the war was really over, but there was a nine-month period where the soldiers still had to fight. But their morale changed. They knew, we've got this. We've won. We're, we're in the already not yet. We're in the in-between right now. We're not yet glorified. The penalty of sin has been taken care of by the death of Christ. And one day the presence of sin is going to be taken away when we're glorified. But right now we're being sanctified. And so we're reckoning with the power of sin. It's been broken and we're, and we're seeking to continue to weaken it, to starve it, to choke it out, to kill it, to put it in a vice lock. That's what God has, has called us to do. Our flesh will never stop making these screaming demands on us or pushing us around. These powerful cravings and urges and instincts and impulses and God is telling us to kill them He's telling us to put to death the deeds of the flesh where what has your flesh ever done for you the Bible says here you're not in debt to it the passage that Mike read here in Romans 8 so then brothers we are debtors not to the flesh we talked about that for two weeks you don't owe your flesh a thing it's never done anything for you where's your flesh left you Disillusioned, disappointed, exalted, guilty, empty, corrupt, depressed, sad, angry, regretful. So you don't owe your flesh anything but to kill it. That's what it deserves. It doesn't deserve more sin. You don't reward it that way. Our affections belong to God. When we scratch that itch of the demands that the flesh makes, it only makes it itch worse, right? It's like drinking salt water in the ocean. It only makes you thirstier and delusional. Sin may taste sweet in the mouth, but it turns bitter in your stomach. It entices us, so we're supposed to kill it. So, that's what John Owen said. That's one of my favorite quotes by John Owen is, be, and it's right out of this passage, be killing sin. That's the tense of the verb here. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body. He's saying, if by the Spirit you be killing sin. Be continually killing sin, you will live. So be killing sin or sin will be killing you. So how do, we, how do we kill sin by the Spirit? We talked the last time about we kill sin relentlessly, we kill sin ruthlessly, and we kill sin relationally. We do it together as a church. All these tenses are plural tense. He's writing to a church and he's saying, you all, I'm from the south, you and you all, you guys, or if you're up north, you guys, right? We do it together. You don't isolate yourself and say, I've got this. No, you don't got this. God gave you a community. He gave you the church. He gave you one another. He gave us 55 one another commands to fulfill. And we need each other. That's why we have community groups. 
That's why we have D groups. That's why we gather together when we're able. So, relentlessly, ruthlessly, relationally, and that's not even the best, most powerful part of this passage. The best part is in verse, well, we just read it together, but I want to highlight it here. Can you guys see that? So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's a promise. You will die here and now, and you will die eternally. Just like Jesus said, I came that they may have more abundant life. You can have life and peace now, and you can have life ever after. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. By the Spirit. By the Spirit. So, see, you can't, you can't put to death the deeds of the body on your own. And this is not just religions say no. When I say religion, I don't mean it in a good sense. I mean it in, I mean it as form, structure, ideas, uh, void of the power of God, okay? Religion is man working his way up to God. Christianity is God coming down to man and empowering him and filling him. So this is not the no of religion. This is not the just willpower. This is not turning over a new leaf. This is not just behavioral modification. That's not what killing sin is. Just stop it, right? You've seen that skit. That's not what this is. This is a supernatural spiritual act that you cannot do alone. God never intended for you to do it alone. He's giving you the divine resources that you and I need to do it. If he didn't, this would just be a taunt. This would just be God teasing us. Hey, put to death the deeds of your body. Kill, kill sin and good luck. That's not what this is. He says, put to death the deeds of the body and do it by the Spirit's resources. Do it by his help, by his power, by his presence. He's, he, I've sent him to fill you. That's what Romans 8 is really all about. How close is God? It's in, in my mind, I, I used to have a picture of God reaching down for, from heaven a hand. That's Romans 8, but it's not quite right, is it? Romans 8 is God getting off his throne, coming down here, crawling inside a human body in Jesus Christ, and then sending his very spirit into our hearts to help us. That's what Christianity is. It's not, come on, you can make it. Come on, come on, like running after a train trying to jump up. You can do it. Come on. That's not Christianity. Christianity is God coming down to us when we could not and would not. We weren't able, we weren't willing. He did it. And he's not left us alone. That's what he said in John 14. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you and I will send my spirit. So, how do we kill sin by the spirit? Killing sin without the spirit's help is like, it's like bringing a knife to a gunfight. I know that's terrible to say that right now with all the stuff going on, but it really is. In fact, it's like, it's like going to a gunfight without even a knife, just with your bare fist and knowing nothing about boxing, having no formal training, no conditioning, total ignorance of the sport. It's like, what do you want on your tombstone? No, we need, we need God's help. So here's the outline today. That was just introduction. I know, I know. We may not get through all of this, but I told you this is part one. We'll do the best we can. And then you can go to Cracker Barrel or Moe's or wherever it is that your heart's delight is, all right? Killing sin by the Spirit. Three, three ways. Uh, three things the Spirit is doing within us, showing us, helping us. One, spiritual reality, and I'll explain that in a minute. Two, divine security, and three, deep intimacy. Spiritual reality, divine security, and deep intimacy. So spiritual reality. 
I'm trying to think of the best way to explain this. What you have here in Romans 8 and what you have with the Holy Spirit indwelling you is to show you what's really going on. What is really going on? Why are things the way they are? I love this passage because it, it so resonates with me and it's the most relevant thing in the world. When you look around and see the conflict, you see death. Is there anything more relevant than this? Why are things the way they are? Why is there this struggle within us? Right here is telling you spiritual reality. You have an enemy out there. You have this residual enemy that, that, that you still have within you that you're supposed to fight. That is what's going on, and you're to slay it, to slaughter it, to execute it, to show no quarter, show no mercy, take no pity, show no compassion. These are the things that are true. This is really about divine revelation. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture. It's called God breathed. God breathed out Scripture. He moved and inspired the men who wrote it. God said everything that he wanted to say, and he is explaining us the world in which we live. He's given us this worldview that no other religion or ideology or philosophy has. And I talk about this often, and I, and I want to do it again. Just some of you are newer here or some of you are visitors. Christianity gives you this worldview that a worldview is always answering three questions. What's the world supposed to be like? Which is to say, what am I supposed to be like? How am I supposed to function as a human being? What's the world supposed to be like? Two, what happened? Because <laughs> it's not functioning the right way. Even unbelievers will tell you. Injustice is a bad thing, right? Right. Is it everywhere? Sure it is. Is there greed and violence and corruption and death and scandal and abuse and hate? Yes. Now, the reason why the world is broken may be different coming from an unbeliever, but Christianity tells us, hey, the world is supposed to be like this, the Garden of Eden, harmony, peace. We're supposed to relate to God, one another, the creation and ourselves in a certain way, but the world's not like that. What happened? Sin entered. This is the way the Spirit helps us is to tell us, hey, this is what's going on. We need that, don't we? So that we don't feel like we're just parachuting and landing in the middle of Landing in the middle of a battlefield and we have no clue. There's been no prep work. There's been no orientation. No, we're not confused. We know exactly what's going on. That's the first thing that the Spirit does. If by the Spirit you put the death of these body. If you're in war, you need to be trained for war. You need to know who your enemy is. You need to know the weapons you have. You need to have a strategy. Sin has a strategy. Sin wants your, your head on a silver platter, right? So we need to have a strategy. We need to have all those things. So the three worldview questions, what's the world supposed to be like, what happened, and how's it going to be put right again? An unbeliever or somebody in a false religion will have totally different answers to really all three of those questions, even to what the world's supposed to be like. So that's the first thing that we get, and by the Spirit, is that the Spirit shows us what is truly going on. This whole passage really does. Any verse in Romans 8 could be used for that point. And it also shows us, not it, he, he also shows us when we're fighting sin, what needs to stay, what needs to go. Where do I need to be convicted in my life? The decisions that I'm making, the places that I'm going. I just barely touched on this last time. Don't we need the Spirit's gentle guidance? That's what this passage says. Those who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. That's one of the evidences. It's not the cause. It's the evidence we know that we belong to God is that His Spirit is within us and He's leading us. We're led by Him, not the flesh. Those are the mutually exclusive realities of human beings. You are either led by the flesh or you're led by the Spirit. And where the Spirit leads you, 
is into conflict with sin and temptation, not to be at peace with it. You know, that's part of what the Bible calls walking in wisdom. I remember when I was younger, I used to say, can I do this? Is this okay to do? Can I go here? Can I date this person? Can I be in this situation? And as I got older and I got wiser, and you guys know about the 10-year idiot rule, right? The 10-year, the Tommy Clayton 10 years ago, I look back and I say, what an idiot. Right? And the Tommy Clayton 10 years before that, I palm plant my head. So do you realize what that means about the you right now? <laughs> it, it, it should make us humble and open to correction and open to help and guidance and assistance from other people. But when I was younger, that would be the question I would ask. Now that's changed. What I want to know is, is this wise? Is this going to shape me and mold me uh, into, into somebody that's conformed to the image of Christ? Is this going to help my brothers and sisters? Is this going to please God? See, when you're led by the Spirit, those are the kinds of questions you're asking. Does this stay or does this go? Because I don't love this. I don't love this more than I love God. It can go. It can go. You need God's help to have that kind of attitude. That's the ruthlessness that we talked about the last few weeks. And it's to also remind us that we could not be more included. You know, Romans 8 sets the record straight about who we are in Christ and through the Spirit. It, it helps us kill and confront the lies that we have believed about ourselves, about the world, about temptation, about we owe ourselves this or that. The word spirit is used 22 times in Romans chapter 8. I think I've told you that. 17 of those, most of those, I will say it this way. Some of those are debatable. Most of those, the word spirit is used 22 times. Most of those are the Holy Spirit. So this whole chapter it's bringing into focus the supernatural work and power and resources that God has given us. And to help us understand what new step of obedience is God calling us to make. I got a, uh, want to really transition to the, to the major application in this first point, which is scripture. I don't know about you, but you can tell it's an election cycle again. Have you guys been getting some mail? Are you tired of it? Even if your favorite, even if your favorite candidate, you know, comes in the mail and you're like, yay, I'm going to vote for this guy or this girl, what I have noticed, and they keep getting bigger, now they're folded in half two ways. I'm serious. I don't, I have a friend who's in advertising, man, that costs so much money, but some of these candidates I know, some of them I know personally because I've lived here long enough now. Some of them have even gone to this church, but it's interesting, I get these big, huge, thick, glossy ads, and it's telling me things about these candidates, and some of it's not nice. <laughs> So-and-so is a criminal, a liar, a liberal, a quitter, like it's, it's making all these statements about their identity. This is who they are, and it's just interesting, man. In the same mailbox on the same day, I got this other, and they're competing. This is a bigger. You got to fold this out three times, and I'm holding it up. I was telling, my, I was telling one of my daughters, like, can you believe this? This is the same person this ad says this about them, they're a quitter, they're a liberal, they're, they're, a, they're a liar, they're a crook, they're filling their pockets, you know, with donors, and over here it's like, it's like the, conser the conservative candidate you can trust. I've done this, I've done this, I've been here for all the votes, and I'm like, look how, look how, look how this works, man, it's deception, it's bait and switch, it's, and listen, if I didn't know these people, 
And I'm just like, you know what, I, I'm going to, I'm clueless today. I'm going down to the ballot box to cast my vote, and I just, I really would like help knowing who these people are. If you're that naive, you would think like, oh, well, pff, I'm not voting for that guy. He's a liar. He's a crook. He's a criminal. He's not looking out for, the, for his constituents, right? But as I thought about that, I thought, how easy is it to believe the lies of the enemy? And the lies that bounce around in our own head. Because listen, you listen to yourself more than you listen to anybody else. And I would just wonder, what lies have you told yourself about your identity? I'm a crook. I'm a quitter. I'm a loser. I have no power. Sin's too strong for me. There's nothing I can do. It was too powerful. I couldn't say no. I'm a victim. This, this, This section blows all of that out of the water. About who you are in Christ the power you possess as a new creature, the death you died to sin's dominion and control and authority, and the power you possess, the person who's dwelling within you to combat sin and, and, and put a spin on that false script, to flip the script. That's what this is really about. In fact, put on your Bible study hat for a minute. It's okay. We're going to dig into the scripture. If, if I back up just a little bit, because it, it's interesting, man, how it says, if by the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, verse 5. You can just look down, look up a little bit rather in that passage. There's a phrase here that's used only twice in the Bible. It's used only twice in the Bible. Check it out. Romans 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on, what, what's that say? The things of the Spirit. The things of the Spirit. What does that mean? Well, it's used in another place. Sorry, smaller font there. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 2, and it's talking about God's Word. And it says this. Paul's writing to the church of Corinth. He says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in what? Words. This is talking about Scripture. Old Testament and New Testament, apostolic doctrine. It's talking about the scriptures that we have. The spirit we have from God that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit. Interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. That means an unbeliever with an unregenerate heart does not accept scripture. He can't. He can't. He's not able to accept it. It's supernatural. It's spiritual. And he's fleshly. He's natural. Natural can't receive supernatural. But that same exact phrase, the things of the Spirit of God, is used in Romans 8, talking about. So we know when the Bible's telling us in this passage, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, it's talking about the things that Scripture lays out for us, the things freely given to us by God. So if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, Part of what that has to mean is, with Scripture's help, right? We need the Word of God to combat sin, say no to temptation, and to slaughter our sin. We cannot do it without Scripture. We need to be receiving Scripture. We need to be exposing ourselves to God's Word over and over, letting it fill our minds and hearts, let it saturate our thinking, let it govern our behavior. And listen, my concern as a Christian and as a leader and as a pastor is that people do this one day a week. I've even talked to people like, hey, are you reading God's Word? Well, yeah, I was there on Sunday. I'm like, well, hang on a minute. How often are you getting tempted? Just on Sunday? (laughs) I get tempted 
major on Sunday, but you know what? I get tempted on Saturday too. Uh, as a matter of fact, and Friday and Thursday and Wednesday, I get. <laughs> do, is it just me? I mean, it's Sunday, and that's that's like saying, "Hey, check it out, man. I need oxygen. So here's what I'm going to do on Sunday. I'm going to take a deep breath. <gasps> I'll be good. I'll be good till next Sunday. I'll see you then. How long can you hold your breath, right? Is is it enough for us to just crack open the Bible and just look at it together one day a week? Is that enough? Or do we need, you know, Peter said, like newborn babes crave the milk of the Word. For those of you that have had babies or are familiar with babies, have you been around a newborn baby that was ready for milk and you didn't have it ready? Ho, 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 look out. You're supposed to crave God's Word like that baby craves milk. It nourishes you. It strengthens you. It feeds you. It keeps you alive. It's, it's your weapon. In fact, Ephesians do I have, did I finish this? You know what it says. You can see the rest of it. It talks about in Ephesians, man, I can't even, I'm getting old, guys. I can barely see this on my phone. Ephesians 6, check this out. If by the Spirit you put the death of deeds of the body, part of that is if, by, if using the Word of God, you, you are wielding the Word of God to combat the lies that your flesh is telling you. That's the only power that sin has is it lies to you. Hey, listen, friends. This is for free. It's not in the notes. Every time you give in to a temptation, you have bought a lie that sin has held in front of you. This will be good for you. This will make you happy. This will make things better. You deserve this. Whether it's worry, whether it's greed, whether it's the sinful kind of anxiety and depression, not the organic kind that you can't control, right? Whatever it is, idolatry, adultery, all those lists of sins, cheating, lying, stealing, whatever it is, you mark it down. When you don't slay it and, it and it gets a hold of you and you sin, you fall prey to sin's temptation, you have believed a lie. So the most powerful reality in the world for you is to use Scripture to know the things that have been freely given to you by God, to combat the lies of the enemy. And here is what Ephesians 6 says about that in a passage about spiritual warfare. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the what? Word of God. And Cliff preached on this last time. Uh, he preached and did amazing. He said, praying at all times in the Spirit. So there's another weapon right there. Uh, and let, let me back up. I don't want you to think the Holy Spirit, I'm not talking about the Holy Spirit being a weapon. He's not a weapon. He is not. The Holy Spirit is not in our hand. You know that, right? We're in His hand. We're not leading the Holy Spirit around. He's leading us around. But what the Holy Spirit has given us is His Word. It's the sword of the Spirit. He authored it. He has, like, it's, it bears His stamp of authority and credibility. It's true. It has cl the clarity that we need, the information that we need, the truth that we need. So if, if giving in to sin's temptation and, and falling victim to sin is you believing a lie... What should be in the forefront of your battle in killing sin? The truth. The truth. And so what I don't want you to hear is just your pastor up here saying, hey, read the Bible more. You have to get to the why before you get to the what and the how, right? If, 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 if sin is confronting you every day and enticing you and seducing you and whispering lies, you need to be exposing yourself to God's Word as much as you possibly can. How much is that for you? I don't know. I don't want to, put, I don't want to be the one to answer that. For me, it's, 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 I'm never satisfied. Are you, are you ever like, man, I finally reached, I got this perfect system to where I'm digesting enough of Scripture, 
It was funny, before I married Sarah, she worked at a Christian bookstore. <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you this. She worked at a Christian bookstore, and there was this guy that was pursuing her, man. Ah. He was pursuing her, and he was saying like, oh, man, sometimes I feel guilty. I just read my Bible. I read my Bible all day, like eight hours a day. My, my friends are rebuking me because I just read the Bible too much. And she told me that years later. I'm like, oh, who was this person? Who is this? And I'm like, he's, <laughs> he's not reading his Bible enough to know how, how arrogant and self-centered that sounds. Anyway, I'm not reading my Bible eight hours a day, okay? That's not all that, that this church is providing uh, a salary for me to do. Uh, but the Bible says in Psalm 1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, stands not in the path of the wicked, and sits not in the seat of the scornful, but his delight, his delight is in what? Is in Netflix. No. <laughs> hey, I'm listening. I'm not, I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm just telling you, there's a lot of things to compete for your attention today, goldfish, right? I, I read... I read one of the celebrity pastors that did a tweet years ago, and he said, well, perhaps the great use of social media on the final day will be to show us that our lack of communion was, with God was not for lack of time or something to that effect. I was like, ouch, true, it's true. We have so much time. Netflix even said the only competition they really have is sleep. It's sleep. Well, I have to stop binging. I got I to gotta sleep. Guys, we have time. We have, do you know how many translations of the Bible we have? Do you know how many free Bible apps there are? I'm not saying this to impose guilt on you. I just want to help you. Man, come on. If, if, you, if you need a plan to read the Bible, uh, most Bibles have a plan at the end of them, something that Matt, our discipleship pastor, can help with. Um, yeah, we need to expose ourselves to God's Word. We need to be saturating our minds and hearts with it because it's the only thing that can... John 17, 17 says, sanctify them by your truth. That means set them apart, conform them to, their image, to your image by your truth. Thy word is truth. That's Jesus' prayer to God. Sanctify them, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. So we're not being sanctified. We're not being fully equipped to combat sin and, and kill sin and say no to temptation if we are not regularly intaking Scripture. We're just, it's just not going to happen. Scripture combats the lies. It tells you who you really are in Christ. This is what's really going on. So we have to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. And one of the things of the Spirit is the Word of God. That's what he uses. John Owen also said this, either this book will keep you from sin, talking about the Bible, so many people have written that in the inside cover of their Bible. Either this book will keep you from sin, or what's the other part of that? Sin will keep you from this book. That's like two mutually exclusive realities, probably true of every person sitting out here and watching from home. Either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from that book. I don't care that that sounds cliche. It's true. It's what the Bible says. We need, we need help. We need all the arsenal of weapons that God has given us. We need to hear and believe the promises of God in Scripture. Man, this thing is so filled with rich, powerful, beautiful promises. Like this. 
when you're combated with the lies of sin, check this out. God is good. Because we think God is withholding this for me. I'm not getting a fair shake down here. God's holding out on me. No, the Bible says God is good. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. God is wise. God has all the information at his disposal that you don't have, which is why he's orchestrating your life in a way that sometimes doesn't make sense to you. It's for your good. That's the very end of this chapter. All things work together for what? For your mediocrity? It's not what it says. It says for your good, and ultimately God knows what is best for you because he's good, he's wise, he's sovereign, he's controlling history, he has ultimate authority. Man, that's... Those three truths together is like the three-legged stool of theology. Lose one of those and you're in serious trouble. God is good. God is wise. God is sovereign. Thank God. Those are always true. Always true. He's orchestrating history to its ultimate conclusion. He's working this trial, this affliction, this deprivation, this pain, this struggle, this disaster, all toward your good and his glory. His plans are good. His love is perfect. His compassion is Is never failing and it's new every day. He holds you in his hand. He's not finished with you. He's growing you. He's molding you. He's refining you. He's shaping you. He has a purpose for you. Those are all promises in the Bible and they're all over the place. And that's just a a smattering of the promises. You could spend the rest of your life just saying, you know what? The only thing I'm going to study in the Bible are the promises because they're all yes and amen in Jesus. And I need those to combat the lies that sin is telling me. And here's another truth. The only sin you can kill is a forgiven sin, and they've all been forgiven. That's what broke the power of sin is the second Jesus died on the cross and said, it's finished. He removed your guilt and your sins as far away from you as the east is from the west. That's a truth I need, man. It's like, hey, you got to go kill this. It's already forgiven. It has no power. Just go cut its head off. My wife told me the other day I came home, and I don't know, we got, our, we got our wires crossed. And she said, there's a snake in the front yard, and Jackson's fishing that. And I was like, oh, great. She said, it's all tangled up in the thing. And, I, and my neighbor helped me, and we threw, <laughs> we threw it at the end of the driveway. And I'm like, well, great. What kind of snake is it? Don't know. Does it have fangs? Is it venomous? Don't know. How big is it? I don't know. It's at the end of the driveway, and it was dark when I got home. And my phone was dying. <laughs> so anyway... Oh, you want to know what happened? (laughs) So I got home, and I went out there with a flashlight and a a hoe in my garage. And I'm, like, kicking this thing. I'm hitting it with the rake. I'm doing it all over the place. And I look, and it's dead. It was already dead. So is your sin, in a sense. It's already forgiven. It has no power. Sin's sting has been removed, the Bible says. Amen. Aren't you glad? I'm allergic to bee stings. I know... I know exactly what that means. The stinger of sin has been removed because we're not under law anymore. We're under grace. Now we have power. Now we have authority. Now we're children of God. Things have changed. We have a whole new reality now. Oh, man. I don't want to pass over any of this. Being led by the Spirit. This is not about subjective guidance. That's not what this is talking about. The word here means a gentle, it's the same word, it's not this violent, God's Spirit's driving you and compelling you, it's not that. Holy Spirit, He is a sensitive person, He can be grieved, He can be insulted, He can be rejected. This is a gentle, a gentle leading. It's the same word used to remove a splinter from the eye in Greek. 
So I hope it's not forceful, right? We're all in trouble. Eyeball is a very sensitive part and organ of your body. But this is not talking about subjective guidance. Who will I marry? What job will I take? Where will I live? Who, who will I date? What classes will I take? The Holy Spirit helps with that. But to just say that it only means that is ripping this out of context. What this is really talking about, the Holy Spirit leads you into this war against your sin. He helps you. He's present. He's there. Verses 13 and 14 really go together. When verse 13 says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The corresponding truth is if, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body is for all who are led by the Spirit. If you're slaughtering your sin by the Spirit, that means you're being led by the Spirit. That's what this is talking about. And that's, that's the next point I really want to make here is divine security. Divine security. You cannot go out into battle against your sin without knowing where you stand with God. And this is so important and it's so good that I'm only going to just barely get into it and then we're going to save it for next week, okay? You are a child of God. The word son or children is used in the greater context of Romans 8. It's used six different times. And the word adoption is used, and it's tremendous. Here, let me, let me read that together. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now listen, ladies, don't feel left out. I know there's a lot of talk and debate about the gender uses in the Bible, and some of that is just liberal garbage I won't even get into today. But there's a reason why in Greek God used this word, sons. It means male, okay? It's because in, in the Greco-Roman world of that day, uh, the highest privilege you could have is to be the firstborn son and have the inheritance of everything that belonged to the father. But here's the beauty and the glory of this. This has been elevated to include women. So don't feel slighted. If you're a girl, feel blessed, okay? This is God's even-handed in his use of analogies. Uh, so don't feel slighted. If you're a girl, feel, feel bl- this is incredible. This is saying in the, in the Greek-Roman world, the only way to describe what you have in Christ is that you would be a firstborn son, that the inheritance is yours. Everything that's coming to Jesus is coming to you. You're going to be an heir, an inheritor. You're adopted, and, and, and you're a joint heir. You're going to get all the inheritance. So don't feel slighted by that. And men, don't feel slighted that we're called the bride of God. I don't feel slighted because I'm called the bride of Christ. I'm not a bride. I'm not a girl. I, don't, I know what that means. That's a picture. It's an analogy. It's a metaphor. It's an illustration. So all throughout this passage is this, this adoptive imagery, which is very powerful. Uh, adoption, he's not using a, a Jewish thing here. He's using a Roman thing. If you were a wealthy landowner and, and belonged to nobility, and you did not have an heir, you didn't have an offspring, you could choose an heir for yourself. You could pick a slave if you wanted to. That's where Paul went with this. He says, you're no longer an orphan. You're no longer a slave. Now you're a son. Now you're adopted. But if you were a wealthy Roman landowner and you had no offspring, you could choose a child. You could choose a youth. You could choose an adult. You could choose a slave. And instantly, three or four things would be true. Okay? Number one, all your debt would be canceled, man. (laughs) Everything you'd ever done that was criminal or that was offensive or that plot pitted your eternity against the state or capital of Rome, it was canceled, it was clear. Secondly, your name changed. Now you belong to this wealthy landowner. Third, your inheritance changed. Everything that belongs to him is now yours, and it's protected. You can't ever lose it. You could not be more secure than if you were a, an adopted heir in Rome in the first century. 
And the last thing that changed would be your loyalty. You are no longer a slave to that master. You are a son, adopted son to this master. Man, did things go, it's like you struck, the, you struck it rich. You won the spiritual lottery, the Powerball. You're a billionaire, right? That's what this means. You're a spiritual billionaire. And you need that language. You need to know that. There is security here. You are a child of God. You didn't, you didn't earn your father. You didn't negotiate to be adopted. You just received it. You received adoption. That's what John chapter 1 says. He came to his own. Jesus came to his own. But his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive them, he gave them what? The right to become children of God. You've been granted that right because of your belief in Jesus. It belongs to you. Man, that is, that is so rich. Human language, English language would fail me to describe the beauty and the power of what this means. You belong. Romans 8 just like shatters that idea of like, man, I've, I just feel left out. I feel like nothing good has ever happened to me, and I have nothing good going for me, and I have nothing forward I have nothing to look forward to. Have you ever said that? Poor me, man. Nothing has ever gone well for me. Really. You know, Jesus died in your place. You deserve hell, judgment, and God's wrath, and Jesus reversed all of that. He took your place. He absorbed all your debt, and he gave you his righteousness. He gave you, he gave you the, the medal of honor that he earned, the badge of honor. He pinned it on your chest. You get all the righteousness that he earned. He takes all your guilt and punishment that you deserve. So something good has happened to you, right? And you do have something good to look forward to. Because you're a son, you get the inheritance. You get all of it. I was reading, I was reading an article about, man, I don't want to dance on, on anybody's grave, but uh, Steve Jobs has always fascinated me. He died in 2011 of pancreatic cancer. He did everything he possibly could as a, as a billionaire to fix that, and he couldn't, which is another illustration, right? When it's your time, it's your time. He got a liver transplant. He did all these crazy forms of trying to heal himself, and it just didn't work. He was just riddled with pancreatic cancer, and he died. He died with a net worth of ten, over $10 billion. Did I say million there or billion? It's billion, okay? What you may not know is that when Steve Jobs was in his early 20s, he and his high school sweetheart were on and off and on and off, and uh, they conceived a child together. And her name was Lisa. And just five years after she was conceived, Steve Jobs created Apple. But Apple, the first Apple computer before it was Macintosh, he named it Lisa. He named it Lisa, but check this out. There's a strange twist to this story. Steve Jobs did not want his daughter. You guys know that? She wrote a book called Small Fry, of which she chronicles all of her childhood. She doesn't throw Steve Jobs, her dad, under the bus. She's just an honest vulnerable portrayal of what her life was like. The only thing she ever wanted from her dad was not money. She didn't want his money. She wanted his affection. She wanted him to love her. She wanted him to accept her, to spend time with her. But she said he was just so caught up in all, in all these global cosmic impact things he was creating, he just didn't have time with her. He, didn't, he, he couldn't give her the attention that, that she needed, that she wanted, that a father should give to his kid, right? And so she grew up, she grew up with this terrible... Uh, the terrible complex. She said this. She said, I felt ashamed of the fact that clearly I was not compelling enough for my father, this incredible man, to unequivocally own me. I would think, was I an ugly baby? Did he ditch me as an unwanted child to focus on his own self-advancement? You know, he named this computer Lisa, and so uh, 
before, before he admitted to having a daughter, they had to do a paternity test with him, which back then was, it only had a 94% capability, which is good enough, right? Of telling you, hey, you're the dad. That's your biological offspring. And it, it like ranked the highest it could as a machine to say like, hey, duh, that's your daughter. I mean, you can kind of tell they belong, you know, she, you can tell she's his offspring. But even though he named his computer Lisa, and he had, he had that girl with this high school sweetheart, he denied it. He said, she's not mine. She doesn't belong to me. And they said, well, why did you name your computer Lisa? And for, and for like five years, for five years he made excuses, giving it some weird computer acrostic. Uh, finally, when he was on his deathbed with cancer, he admitted, you know, okay, the computer I named after my daughter, and she began to go and visit him. It's a long and drawn-out story. I won't tell you everything that happened there. Uh, but this was interesting. This happened when she was... When she was seven years old, she was with him, and they were driving around in his Porsche. And she was just joking, and she said innocently, because his Porsche had a scratch on it, and he said, I'm going to get a new one. I can't have a scratch on my Porsche. So she said, oh, well, when you're done, can I have it? And this is what she said. His scowling response shocked me. I was only seven. Absolutely not, he said, in such a sour, biting way that I knew I'd made a mistake. She remembers, I wished I could take it back. We pulled up to the house, and he turned off the engine. Before I made a move to get out, he turned to face me. You're not getting anything, he said. You understand me? Nothing. You're getting nothing. His voice hurt sharp in my chest. Now, that may not mean much to you, but for a girl whose dad was, by that time, a multimillionaire, maybe not a, a billionaire yet, he turned to his daughter, and basically he had been they couldn't even get him to pay child support. He had to get sued for it, even though he was a millionaire. And his, Lisa's mom had to move her 13 different times because they were so poor. She took a cleaning job. Anyways, the guy's had a long history of just not being a responsible dad. But to hear that, like, I don't want you. You don't belong to me. I'm here because I have to be, not because I want to be. And you're not getting anything from me. I just think how completely opposite that is from what this passage teaches us about God. He wants us. He loves us. He's giving us everything he could possibly give us. He gave us his son, Jesus. He gave us his word. He gave us his spirit. He gave us one another. He gave us all these divine promises. He told us what's coming in the new age. He's going to restore everything. He's going to restore this planet. He's going to restore the universe. That's coming at the end of chapter 8. He's going to restore everything. Even the creation is longing, groaning with eager anticipation to be set free from its bondage. And we are going to get new resurrected bodies on this new restored planet. And we're going to dwell together with God forever. So how in the world can we say, if, if I just had something to look forward to, that is one of the lies that's going to put you in a very vulnerable position to say yes to sin. Because it's going to put you as a victim, right? Well, I'm just a victim. No, you're not. You're a victor. You're more than a conqueror. You've got God's spirit within you. What else could you possibly need? That's what Romans is telling us. You are adopted. You belong to God. It's sealed. It's done. You have security. You have security. You know where you stand with God. There's no mystery. There's not, Paul's not saying, well, you know, the jury's out. We're not really sure. We'll see how you do out there, kid, and then come back and we'll talk about adoption. Because God's got a good name, and we don't want you to ruin it or sully it or tarnish it. That's not what this passage says. It says, you're God's. Listen, he justified you with his eyes wide open. There's nothing you could ever do to make God love you less than he does. Because you didn't do anything to make him love you to begin with. He did it. 
If Christianity was based on our performance, I would lose my salvation every single day. And so would you. Thank God it's not. Adoption is not negotiated. It's received. How many people in here have received God's adoption as sons and daughters? Man, praise God, we're there. It's written in the Lamb's book of life. It's a done deal. And now you know what? You can get the mighty sword of the Spirit in your hand, and you can go out there and slaughter your sin with the resources that God has given you. You are being led by His Spirit. If by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live. You have divine security. I'm not quite finished with that point, uh, and I'm not even going to start the next one, deep intimacy, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Oh, man, this is so powerful. Abba is the word for daddy in Aramaic. We don't cry out, Father, Father. We don't, we don't have this proper, there's not this proper, Jesus taught, Jesus was scandalous in the way he taught his disciples to pray. Jesus was the only other one that, that used that term. The Jews wouldn't use it. Jesus is teaching them to. You know, Jesus cried out in the garden in Mark 14, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Please take this cup, the cup of divine wrath. He was about to drain to the dregs. He said, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And you know what the Father answered him? Silence. Not a word. Can you imagine? Can you imagine anything worse than you're a child? You're depending on your father. You've had this unbroken relationship with him for all eternity. For eternity past, if such a thing exists, God created time too. There's been this unbroken, deep, beautiful, perfect communion. And then all of a sudden you say, Father, take this cup from me. And he doesn't answer you. He's gone. He's let go of your hand. You're in the dark. You are all alone. You're deserted and you're forsaken. Here's the truth. That will never, ever, ever happen to you or me. And here's why. Because it happened to Jesus. It's what we deserve. It's what we deserve. We'd be, we deserve to be taken into a dark, dangerous, destructive wilderness and God to completely let go of us and let judgment fall on us. That's what hell is. Away from God and the, the presence of His glory, the absence of His love, that's what eternal hell is. And Jesus suffered that for you and me so that we'll never have to see the back of God. We'll never have to hear, away from me, you wicked servant, I never knew you. No, we can cry out, Abba, Father, this term of deep powerful intimacy. And God responds, you say daddy when you need something or when you're hurt, right? Daddy, we had that type of intimacy. Man, I love that. That's security. Well, we've gone long enough. More next week, okay? Or the next time we're in, in Romans 8, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for these powerful truths, these realities that we are called to kill our sin. We're not called to do it alone. And we're not called to do it empty-handed. You have filled our hearts with your spirit. You have filled our hands with divine scripture. You've put promises in our minds and hearts. You've filled us with divine resolve. <laughs> you have led us by your spirit. You've adopted us into your family. You've given us this intimacy, Lord. We can come to you at any time for any reason and find an open door. We can come to your throne of grace with boldness with confidence that we're going to be received, we're going to be heard, we're going to be welcome there because of the blood of Christ has cleansed us, and we are most welcome in your presence now. Lord, as we think about adoption, we think about how the father had to absorb all the debt of the children he brought into his family, and just the unspeakable debt that you absorbed for us. I pray if there is anyone under the sound of my voice, they have not up to this point understood 
the death that their sin and transgressions bring upon them. Lord, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. I pray, Lord, would your spirit open their eyes and their heart to know this truth, to act on it, to say, I am a sinner. I am guilty before God. I have violated his laws. I have provoked his wrath. I deserve his judgment. I deserve to be cast away forever. But Lord, you sent your son. You extend that invitation to us to come to you, to come to you broken, to fall into your arms, exhausted and wearied and repentant and humble. I pray that would happen. Even now in this place, and those watching from home, Lord, they would cry out to you for mercy and for forgiveness, confess their sin, repent and turn, and may we find the help and the hope that we need in Jesus. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, listen, this is the time in our service where we have what's called a, a song of reflection, a Selah song, where we can think about what we've heard, we can reflect on what we've heard, we can process what we've heard. We have a prayer team in the back. And look, it doesn't have to be something that you were convicted of in this sermon. Maybe it's just you want to talk to somebody, you want to cry on somebody's shoulder, you want to confess a sin, you want to pray with somebody, you want to be heard by another human being, you felt alone all week, this is your time. And now what we're doing is even after we've dismissed and and had our charge and the service is over, our prayer team is going to stick around just in case it's a little awkward for you to go back there, but this is your time to sit in your seat, to pray to ask God for grace, for power, for strength, or to go back there and find help with our power, t- power team. It's really what it is, power team, not the kind that like tear phone books in half, but, you know, the other kind. And uh, we'll hear this song, we'll, we'll pray together, and then we'll hear some announcements and be dismissed, guys. The Savior said, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe.
has paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, he washed it white as Just a few, thank you. We have just a few announcements before we uh, do our dismissal and our charge. Um, the first one is this. We have community groups that are starting up after Labor Day. You know, we, we do the rhythm of our groups here with the, with the seasons. We've been on summer break, which is why we've had some events. Um, but some of you have still been meeting in your discipleship groups throughout the summer, which has been so encouraging and invigorating for me as your pastor to hear. But community groups are starting soon. We're doing some training with uh, those leaders next Sunday. I think you should have gotten an email about that if you're a facilitator or a new host. We'll have that after the service next week, and lunch will be provided. Um, but on our website that Megan has done an amazing job setting up for us, we now have, uh, it's active, it's, it's live, it's hot. You can go to the button at the top. Uh, I think it's under Grow. There will be a tab that, that says Community Groups, and you can click on that, and you can see the six different groups, locations, and when you, you have to click at the top to, to sign me up, uh, you can put a request in to be added to that group. Now, give it a few days because these leaders are going to get that email and see who you are and then in, include you in the group. But these are just, these are groups that meet throughout, uh, throughout the four cities. I think six cities represented by all of our members and regular attenders here. We meet in homes. We do it once a week, uh, twice. It's for Bible study or more assimilation of the message and the passage that went along with the message. Uh, and the other two times, once as a fellowship, just to get together and do life together as a family. Uh, and the other one is an outreach of some kind. Some of you go to feed the homeless in the city, share the gospel with them as you're able. Some of you picked up other causes in your neighborhood. So we do that together in community groups. You know, you can't do everything that we're called to do in the Christian life right here. For the last two hours, there's no way. You could counsel one another, bear one another's burdens, confess your sins to one another. We're called to do that all week long. And really what God has called us to do, kill sin, we do that together. We do it relationally. So you can go on, that, on, on our website and click that tab, and you can see all the different groups that have been set up. Uh, we had the Central Deltona group, and there's a, she did a great job. She put a, you can even click on the location of it and see where it's at on the map, see how far it, it's going to be of a drive for you, and some of them have, uh, have different personalities. Some are more kid-friendly. There's child care. You can read all the details on that, or you can submit a request, I think, to the leader of that group and ask questions. Uh, there will be a cap on some of those when they get too big. The facilitator and the host reserve the right to be able to say, okay, that's enough, because if you have 50 people in a living room, it's not going to be very functional or efficient, is it? So all that to say, man, I feel, I feel like a commercial. Time's running out. Better first come, first serve. So think about this. Pray about this. Go on the website. Poke around to all the different ones. What are the other ones? We have some more there. Northeast Deltona, Orange City, Southwest Deland, Southeast Deland. So no matter where you're at, there is a community group close to you. So there's no excuse for you to find community and fellowship with other people and fight sin together. So here's the next announcement. You know, we have some rhythms here at this church. One of those rhythms is whenever we have a fifth Wednesday in the month, we, 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 if we have community groups that week, we 
cancel those and we all meet together in a prayer gathering. Since community groups will not have started yet, there's not going to be any cancellations, but uh, what's the date on that? The next, August 31st, that's, that's not this Wednesday, but the following Wednesday is going to be a fifth Wednesday, so we're going to have, have a prayer gathering. You can mark your calendar for that. Does that say 6.30? 6.30 to 8 p.m.? Some of us fast together. We don't talk about it because you're not supposed to let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Some people fast and pray all day, and they meet together in that fifth Wednesday prayer group, and we break fast after it and share a meal together. Um, so it, we're not sure where it's going to be this time. It'll be in somebody's living room, and we'll give you that detail as we get closer. And the next announcement is the charge. Well, I have one more for students. It's that time of... Uh, the week when we gather as students every second week. So the student gathering is going to happen tonight from 6 to 8 p.m. From 6 to 8 p.m. Uh, and hang on a minute. I'll tell you where that's going to be at because I took a picture of it. From 6 to 8 p.m. and it is at Dewey O'Boster Park. Is that, am I saying that right? Booster. Thank you. Dewey Booster Park in Deltona. So, from 6 to 8 p.m. tonight, the students are gathering at Dewey Booster Park in Deltona. They're going to enjoy summer snacks, play some field games, have a back-to-school Bible study uh, now that the kids are a week or so into school. So, make sure and be there for that. Just Google where it is, or if you need the uh, address, it's 1200 Saxon Boulevard. 1200 Saxon Boulevard. Be there from 6 to 8. It'll be a good time. That's all the announcements that we have, and now we're going to do what we do every week. We're going to stand our feet. If you're new here, and this seems like weird, cultish, we do this every week. This is what we call the charge. Uh, we're not charging you money. We're like charging you to go out and do something. By the way, we don't pass an offering plate here. We have a donation box in the back. Our people are faithful to give. You can give online, or you can give in the back. Um, but we're going to do our charge, and this is simply to remind all of us that out there, outside those doors, lies Central Florida, and it is your mission field. It's not the enemy. It's your mission field. There's people out there that need the hope that you have. They need to hear the good news that you have believed that has rescued you. They need to hear about Jesus. So here's the charge we do every week. Let's say it together. I am a witness. I have been called to minister to my neighborhood in both word and deed. God has given me his word to equip me, his spirit to empower me, and his life to motivate me. I pledge my life for the gospel. You have been sent. And you know what? We may say it this way, and in fact, we may change it. I pledge my life to Jesus, right? You're pledging your life to a person, but that life that God has given you, he's given you a message to go out and share, and that message is the gospel. So listen, you have been sent. May God's spirit keep you. May he bless you, the sheep of his pastor. May he fill you with his presence and go with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll see you next time.